Hi, Grace Point. It is so good to see you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, we had originally planned on being back uh, in, offering in-person gatherings in addition to our online gatherings today. Um, and we'd also had planned on when we had decided that because of the Omicron and the spread and all of that, that we decided to be online only, we decided that we would still broadcast live from 3rd and Lindsley. But due to some exposures and due just to the unbelievable uh, ease of spread of this variant, we decided uh, on Friday that it, the best bet for us, the right thing to do would be for us to be remote. And so here we are. I'm coming to you from my study today, uh, from my office at home. My kids are uh, upstairs right now doing uh, virtual school. Uh, so you never know what you might hear or what might, what might happen. And virtual school is so much fun. It's just the best. And so they're, they're doing that. And uh, I, I want to jump in. I want to jump right into what I want to talk about today. And that is uh, something that happened this past Thursday. This Thursday, January 6th, was the one-year anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And as I sat there, I was watching it snow. I was drinking some coffee. Our kids were doing their virtual learning. And I couldn't help but flash back to what I was doing a year ago on that very day at that very moment, watching TV with absolute disbelief. I could not believe what I was seeing unfold right in front of me. One year ago, supporters of the soon-to-be former President Donald Trump stormed the United States Capitol. They stopped a constitutional process of certifying the Electoral College win of Joe Biden, and they occupied the building. Lives were lost. The lives of Capitol Police officers who stood between the insurrectionists and the members of Congress were deeply harmed and lost. The damage wasn't just isolated to January 6, 2021, either. That attempt to overthrow the democratic process and the institutions of the United States reverberates. And lots of us are concerned about the potential for political violence and more attacks on democracy and future elections. There was another component of that day um, for me um, that really stood out and that was, uh, if, if, it was, if it's possible, it made that day even worse. And it was the images unfolding on my television screen of some of these same folks who are attacking the Capitol, attacking police officers who are doing, just wreaking havoc and carnage at our nation's capital, while also carrying crosses and holding banners that said Jesus saves or Jesus 2020. And they were holding them next to Confederate flags and they were setting up gallows on the lawn where they wanted to actually execute some of our uh, public leaders. And it was this scene, there was this scene in the chamber that where these folks who, the insurrectionists who had broken in, they gathered around and they prayed this big dramatic prayer. And in that prayer, they invoked the name of Jesus and essentially gave Jesus credit for inspiring what they'd done. And it was in that moment that I realized that the truth about January 6th, the truth we have to admit, the truth we have to speak to, is that what happened on January 6, 2021, was propelled and fueled by white Christian nationalism. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Because white Christian nationalism is an anti-Christ ideology. I mentioned on Twitter a couple weeks ago that I'd be talking about this today, and somebody responded, does your church have a big white Christian nationalist problem? Um, and mean, Meaning, do we have a church full of white Christian nationalists? And I, I just said, no, no, thank goodness, not to my knowledge. We, we thankfully do not have, within Grace Point, a, a large contingent of white Christian nationalists. But 
Here's what I also know. That we need pastors, we need clergy, we need faith leaders, we need faith communities. Specifically, because this problem comes within our tradition, we need Christian faith communities to speak out and to name this white Christian nationalism as an evil, the evil that it is, and to challenge it. And so here we are. And so before we jump in, before I explore what I want to explore today, I just want to make sure we're all working with similar definitions. So when I talk about nationalism, I'm talking about the identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. Right, so it's not just being proud of your country. It's not just being grateful to live in a place. It's sort of this, our country's the best country and we can do whatever we want to you. We can take your resources. We can dictate your policy. We can do whatever we want because we are the best. We're number one, right? Like that's sort of the whole nationalist thing is we're better than everybody else on the block. Christian nationalism is that nationalism that is religiously infused and supported. And I think the goal for lots of Christian nationalists is a kind of theocracy. And of course, it's a theocracy determined by their interpretation, right? The interpretation of those who are pushing the ideology, which is a very narrow interpretation, which is a very uh, uh, power-supporting interpretation, which is a very white-centered interpretation. It's an interpretation that supports who they are and their agenda. Uh, and, and it actually gears everything toward their benefit. But here's the thing. Before we get into this sort of like, well, they're not real Christians. Actually, they are. They are real Christians. Christian nationalists, white Christian nationalists, are real Christians. And here's why. They're Christians because they say they're Christian. I don't get to determine who's Christian and who's not. I, I, they're, they're, that's just not a job any of us get to do. What makes somebody Christian whether I like their practices, whether I like their beliefs, whether I like the way they show up in the world, doesn't matter. We're Christian, even though some people say we're not. We're Christian because we, we say we're Christian. We, we claim to follow Jesus. Westboro Baptist Church, they're Christian because they claim to follow Jesus. Now, what I hope is clear is that we have a very different way of following Jesus, a very different understanding of who Jesus was and what his mission and message was. That should be true. Yes, let's, let's make sure we absolutely, yes, there should be some distinctions here. But we don't get to go around saying who's Christian and who's not. Because the truth is, there is no such thing as Christianity. There are only Christianities. And what I mean is, there is no monolithic religion that everybody agrees on, no matter how many people are gathered in church this morning saying some sort of creed, no matter how many people are gathering in church claiming to affirm the same thing. All across the world, billions of people claim to be Christian, and they're Christian in different ways, and they believe different things, and they practice in different ways. There, there is no such thing as Christianity as a monolithic religion. There are only Christianities. And I hope what becomes clear then is that the way we create distinction is not by saying, well, we're one and you're not. The way we create distinction is by saying, here's how we show up in the world. Here's how we practice. Here's, here's our set of convictions and values. And here, here's how those convictions and values cause us to live and be and move in the world. And so nationalism, Christian nationalism, and I want to talk about the component, um, that uh, the, the white component. And, and what I want to say about this is, this whole message of Christian nationalism is grounded in white supremacy. That should have been evident on January 6th. It should be evident every single time th this conversation comes up. They're not carrying around Confederate flags because of heritage. Actually, they are. And the heritage is racism. And the heritage is white supremacy. That's the only reason you do that. 
And so the reality is that this movement of Christian nationalism is 99.9999999, just taken all the way on out, grounded uh, in white supremacy. And it, it's actually 100% grounded in white supremacy. And it's uh, the people participating in it in the, in the insurrection were 99.9999% white people. And because when they talk about making America great again, as if America ever has been fully great. When I think of great, our country becoming great, I think of it being a place of equity and justice and compassion, a place where people don't have to go broke for health care, a place where people have their basic needs met, a place where people are seen, everyone is seen as a human being and they're not dehumanized, a place where this, this mythical thing called the market doesn't determine the value of another human being's life. I think of that, and we've never really achieved that yet. We've done some incredible things. Of course, we've done some really good things in the world, and we've also got a lot of blood on our hands. We're, every country is a mixed bag of good and bad beauty and ugliness. That's just how empire works. But when they say make America great again, I think what they're talking about is make America less, more inequitable again. I think part of what has spooked some of the folks who are energizing this movement is that America is becoming a place, a more diverse place, and a place that celebrates that diversity. And instead of welcoming that with open arms and realizing that that diversity makes us stronger and more beautiful as a people, as a country, they see it as a threat to their power and to their control. And so when we talk about Christian nationalism, we can't leave out the component that this is grounded in white supremacy. I thought I might begin by just talking a little bit about my experience with Christian nationalism. And I didn't even know I had one as a kid. But looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty, And when you look back, you can begin to see it. And it began for me as a young person. It began for me going to a church that had two flags on stage. Now, on one side was the Christian flag, uh, which, I, you know, Jesus didn't carry. And on the other side was the American flag. And I can remember going to things like vacation Bible school as a kid. And I can remember that we would say the pledge to the Christian flag, but we would also say the pledge to the American flag. And actually recently I, I drove by a church uh, um, near where I live and I saw out in front of the church, there was a flagpole. And on the flagpole, there was a Christian flag and above it, there was an American flag. And I thought, well, at least this church is being honest about where their values and allegiances and loyalties lie. But I remember that as a kid, the Christian flag, the American flag. I remember saying the pledge uh, to both of those flags. I remember on specific Sundays, especially near July 4th, we would sing all patriotic songs in worship. And some of them mentioned God, of course, but some of them didn't. And even as a kid, as, as a kid I wondered, why are we doing this? Why are we singing songs that, that seems like what we're worshiping here is not God? It seems like what we're worshiping is, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but the state, the empire. It, it seems like, and, and it's interesting to me, that um, it's almost become that here's how you know you're a really good Christian is that you're also a really good supporter, patriot, um, follower of the American empire. And the passion behind all of that patriotism and all of that na burgeoning nationalism cranked up to 11 after 9-11. can remember it vividly. After all, we were at war, and it wasn't just a war between America and those who attacked us on September 11th. It was a war, the way it was couched in my circles growing up. It was a war between Christianity and Islam. And now I realize how ridiculous that is. But at the time, that's how we were, it's what we were taught. Christian, the Christian faith is at war 
America represents the Christian faith. When in reality, this idea of America having a religion, a country can't have a religion, first of all, really. But this whole idea of America being a Christian nation, when none of our, like, if you take the Sermon on the Mount, if you take the teaching of Jesus and overlay it on our politics, you get nowhere near anything that emerges to be called a Christian nation. How did, how did all this happen? I can also remember the church I pastored um, before coming to Grace Point years, or very early on, a couple of years into my time there, somebody brought in an American flag that had been flown over a war zone in Iraq, and they, they hung it up. And it was around this time that I started becoming un, uneasy with this. It was around this time I started learning, hey, maybe this is actually, this doesn't have a place here. Maybe we're, we're doing something else. We're, we're, and we're going to talk about what that thing maybe we were trying to do is in a minute. But maybe we're trying to do something else and maybe this just doesn't line up. And I remember having to take that flag down and that it wasn't at the time with some folks a very popular decision. How did this happen? How did we end up with churches with American flags? How did we end up with allegiance to the empire becoming not only part of the deal, but that a certain level of patriotism was a Christian value? How did we get here? Uh, and I think it begins, uh, and I'm going to try not to go completely off track on this because this is something I get very passionate about. I think it begins with this idea of Christian nationalism would have been considered a deal breaker by the earliest Christians. Listen to some of these quotes from the earliest church fathers. This is from Tertullian. He lived uh, from the year 160 to the year 220 CE. Here's a few of the quotes from him. Shall we carry a flag? It is a rival to Christ. Think about that. We have churches with flags up front. Should we carry a flag? It's a rival to Christ. Shall it be held lawful to make an occupation of the sword? Should we have a job that involves violence, carrying weapons? When the Lord proclaims that he who uses the sword shall perish by the sword, and shall the son of Peter, and these, this language is patriarchal, it's, it, it's masculine, I apologize for that, um, but we can, we can shift it. Shall the son or daughter of peace take part in the battle when it does not become him or her, even to sue at law? Like, should we, should we take up arms when it's actually not even something we're supposed to do to sue one another? And shall they apply the chain and prison and the torture and punishment who is not the avenger even of his own wrongs? How, how can we torture other people when we're not even supposed to seek revenge when we're, when we're hurt? How will a Christian person war? Nay, how will they serve even in peace without a sword, which the Lord has taken away? And then another great line from Tertullian is, Christ, in disarming Peter, disarmed every soldier. And can you see Tertullian suddenly becoming pro-empire? Can you see Tertullian suddenly saying to be a Christian means that you're a really uh, patriotic person willing? And by the way, what happened on January 6th wasn't patriotism. Let's be very clear. What happened on January, January 6th was armed nationalism, armed white Christian nationalism. Here's what Justin Martyr says. Justin Martyr lived around the same time as Tertullian. They didn't overlap exactly. But he said, we ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil. But all of us throughout the whole wide earth have traded in our weapons of war. We have exchanged our swords for plowshares, our spears for farm tools. Now we cultivate the, the fear, the respect of God, justice, kindness, faith, and the exception, expectation of the future given us through the crucified one. This is another early Christian named uh, Marcellus of Tangier. And he, he said this supposedly when he was leaving the army of Emperor Diocletian. Emperor Diocletian was a, a Roman Caesar, who Roman emperor who persecuted Christians. 
um, he said, I threw down my arms for it was not seemly that a Christian man who renders military service unto the Lord Christ should render it by earthly injuries. It is not lawful for a Christian to bear arms for any earthly consideration. These are early Christians. This is how early the early Christian tradition thought about matters of violence and matters of uh, engaging with the state in specific ways. So what happened? Well, I think what happened is the conversion of Constantine. And what happened is when the Roman emperor co-opted Christianity in the 300s, and, and I think that's how we have to look at it, everything changed. Uh, suddenly a movement that was at its core offering an alternative to the brutality and dehumanization of empire, suddenly that same movement was now collaborating with empire. What began with Jesus was a movement that was calling people away from that dehumanization of empire into a different kind of community, into a different way of living together. And suddenly, now, what is good for the empire, what is good for the church is good for the empire and vice versa. And suddenly you have a really uncomfortable relationship where the church depends on the state and the state depends on the church. And it creates this sort of really, um, I want to use a technical theological term here, a real yuckiness that is just hard to stomach. Because the reality is the church didn't convert Constantine. Constantine converted the church. And you may ask, why did they go along with it? Why didn't they see through it? Well, during that era of the church, they were just coming out of a persecution under Emperor Diocletian. Property had been confiscated. Lives had been lost. I'm sure the idea of not only a reprieve, but uh, from the persecution and and, uh, losing their land and all of that, I'm sure that was partly a benefit. But then there's this idea of some security and some power and some prosperity. I mean, if, if the emperor suddenly is on your side and on your team, you go from being uh, marginalized and down and out, you go to, to now people were using the sword on you and now you have influence over who the sword gets used on. And sadly, this relationship with Constantine, I think, transformed the church and not in a good way. And today there are many white Christian nationalists who claim they have been persecuted, but they haven't. Being held accountable for hateful, dehumanizing, bigoted ideologies is not persecution. It's being held accountable for hateful, bigoted, dehumanizing ideologies. And one of the key differences between the vision of Jesus and the vision of white Christian nationalism is the ultimate goal, the end game. Jesus' vision was to offer an alternative to empire. That's what Jesus is doing, an alternative to how, how, how might we live together differently in a way that doesn't punish some, dehumanize some, harm some for the benefit of the others? How might we live together in a way that is just and equitable? And of course, Christian nationalism seeks a Christian, according to this specific group's interpretation, empire. Not the same thing. Jesus isn't offering us a different version of empire. Plays by the same rules and just is nicer to other people. No, Jesus is offering us something that goes against, that cuts against the grain. It is organized differently. It treats people differently. It is not empire light. Jesus is offering us, and he used the language kingdom of God, which is political language. But he's talking about a vision for the world and how the world should be run. Listen to these words from Jesus in Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples. As to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded read that Caesar, lorded over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. So there's this power structure, there's this hierarchy. People up here use their power on people down here, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader, like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is at the table? Or the, for who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one 
who serves. Jesus is putting forth an alternative vision for how the world could be run. Because remember, politics, everything is political. Because politics are about, it's about how we order our common life together. It, it, politics, it's about how we decide to live together in this world. And Rome has a specific kind of politics, and America does, and Christian nationalists do. And so do the Jesus movement. And I want to just contrast the two really briefly. Christian nationalism functions exactly like empire. It uses coercion as a means. Do what we want or there's consequences. Do what we want or we will take up our weapons and we'll storm the capital. Right? In an attempt to threaten, coerce, to, using fear to try to get people to fall in line. Christian nationalism, just like empire, uses power over. That's the whole point. We have power and we use it over you to get what we want. Christian nationalism is clearly not afraid to use violence. It is unbelievable when you think about it that Christians gather around the crucified one, the one who would rather give his hands for nails to be crucified than to harm his enemies. And yet, within the first 300 years of the church, you end up having a shift in the movement. So suddenly now they're persecuting heretics and willing to kill people who disagree with them, disagree with their beliefs and they're launching crusades. And even today we see in Christian nationalism, people who are willing indiscriminately to use violence to try to push their agenda into the world. It's ultimately about taking. It's about taking. People want to talk about their rights, their rights, their rights. That's not ultimately what they're talking about. They're talking about getting their way. And that's different. That's different. Because often when they talk about, well, what about the freedom of religion? What they really mean is the freedom of their religion and the freedom for them to impose their religion on everybody else. They don't really mean freedom of religion. And they also don't really mean freedom from religion, which is also something people should have access to. What they mean is freedom of our religion, freedom of their way of seeing their religion, and then the power to impose that upon other people. And then it's exclusive. Right? You're either with us or against us. You're, you're either, you either see the world through this lens or you're a problem and we have to get rid of you. Christian nationalism functions exactly. You take the plan of empire and you overlay it on Christian nationalism and you have a perfect match. And yet Jesus offered a different kind of way. Jesus' way was not ground in, grounded in coercion. It was grounded in nonviolence. Jesus' commitment to not harm other people. His commitment to be willing to bleed rather than draw blood. Uh, and this, within the early Christians, you can see through some of those quotes I read earlier, and if you, if you study the literature from that period of time, the idea of Christians harming other people, the idea of Christians engaging in practices of, of sword-bearing in order to get their way, it was just a completely opposite perspective than they had been given. They and their understanding was grounded in the story of Jesus, the nonviolent one. And instead of power over, Jesus comes and he talks about power under. Essentially, if you read what Jesus says, uh, just in what we, we read in Luke 22, this idea of actually don't be the one sitting and being served. Go be the one who serves. Use your power. Use your influence. And it's in the early days, there were powerful people who aligned with the Jesus movement. But the Jesus movement didn't then say, well, we want to make sure you're comfortable so we, we don't apply this. You know, the Jesus movement called them to use their power, their privilege, and their resources 
to do good, to come alongside those who had been oppressed and marginalized and mistreated and unheard, to come alongside those who had been forgotten and displaced and left out, to come alongside those who were hungry and thirsty and naked, and to come alongside them and provide them with the basic necessities of life and the basic goodness of humanity. This was the Jesus movement in the beginning and for the first few hundred years, and it still exists in the world today even though so many of the dominant expressions choose power over, not power under. And then the primary marker of the Jesus movement was compassion, not coercion. Compassion. Compassion. What if the empire became compassionate? Then suddenly you have to say, how much does insulin cost? And suddenly, how much are people paying for basic health care? Then you have to ask questions like, really? How much? How much? What? What? Compassion. You begin to have to organize things differently. You, you begin to realize that maybe the God we've been bowing down to is, has not been God, but the market. That maybe we've been worshiping at the altar of power and wealth and success at the expense all Every time we bow down to the altar of the market, it requires a human sacrifice. And maybe we begin to realize the Jesus movement was doing something else. Maybe we begin to realize the Jesus movement was seeking peace through justice and healing. Not this fake peace, not this, this kind of, oh, let's just paper over that. No, no, no. Peace through justice and healing. It was grounded in a self-giving love willing to give itself away in, good, in goodness and compassion and mercy and generosity to other people. And then finally, whereas Christian nationalism and empire function in an exclusive, it's our way, and you either fall in line or we run over you. This way of Jesus is an ever-expanding way, an expansive way that includes and invites as many people who, who are seeking a different way to be human, a more human way to be human. And I think that's the problem. Empire isn't a human way to be human. It's a, it's a subhuman way to seek to be human. And Jesus is inviting us to embrace our true humanity. What happened and what's happening in our country under white Christian nationalism is not the way of Jesus. It is an antichrist path that is seeking to create a new kind of empire where their religion, their interpretation of their religion, is used as a, as a club to beat everybody else up. And the way of Jesus is a way of self-giving love, a way of compassion and justice and healing and an ever-expanding table. And so what do we do? Uh, you know, if I had all of... Uh, if I had all those answers, I would probably be invited on to CNN or something, and I don't. But here's what I'll say. I, I think we have to model an alternative. If, if white Christian nationalists are Christian because they say so, we have to begin, and, I, and we are, we're trying to all, um, articulate an alternative Christian path. And what I, part of that is we don't cede the language. We don't stop calling ourselves Christian because those folks over there are calling themselves Christian. We, we articulate a different kind of Christianity. We, we articulate a compassionate, a generous, a just, a, a, an ever-expansive Christian faith. That, that's part of what we do. We just articulate. We, we, we talk about it differently, and then we practice it differently. And I think at Grace Point, that's one of the things we do beautifully, is we talk about it differently, but we also seek to embody it differently.
And then I think we also have to speak out. We have to use when we, when we can, when we, you know, the, the language you, you hear all around is if you see something, say something. And I think that this applies to Christian nationals and we have to begin to speak out against it in whatever ways it feels practical, whatever way it feels safe, whatever way it feels for you. But I, I, I know I must speak out against white Christian nationalism, not because Grace Point has a big white Christian nationalism problem, but because there are places all over the country, churches all over the country who aren't using their voice and influence to speak out against this evil. And until we do, until clergy, until pastors, until communities draw a line in the sand and say, this isn't okay. This is dehumanizing and it's antichrist and it's evil. Until we do that, then it sits alongside as a viable option for a way to practice our faith. And I, I think we have to say that they're Christian because they say they're Christian, but that is an antichrist perspective and it is an antichrist way and it is an antichrist ideology so i think we have to speak out and i'm committed to speaking out and i know so many of you are as well and so today as we reflect on the past year as we reflect on the fact that we still i'm sure many of us are still nervous about future elections many of us are still nervous about the future of democracy in our country um as long if we say nothing if we don't engage if we don't speak out then that may be the future. But my hope is, as we articulate a better path, a more just and generous and compassionate, inclusive path, and others join alongside, that we can have a different future. And that's what we're working for, and that's what we're committed to helping create, is a different kind of future. Not only for our, uh, this country, but a different kind of future for the Christian tradition. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a community that's willing to go there again and again and again. You're beautiful. Grace Point, I love you. Have a great week.